Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Tourpreneur Podcast. Today we are airing a online session from Arrival Online, which focuses all on the future of international travel. Douglas sent me an email a couple of days ago, and he felt that you, us, would enjoy this session that he had with Carol Ream, who is head of research and analytics for Brand USA, which is the global tourism marketing arm for the United States. And she shares her insights on what lies ahead for international travel Some of the discussion uh, revolves around how travelers around the world are thinking about travel, how they're planning trips, what they're looking for. Douglas also discusses with Carol what uh, operators of tours, activities, attractions, and experiences should do to reach those travelers, what travel marketing will look like in the future, and what adjustments operators should make to their products. So I want to say a big thank you to Douglas and the Arrival team for allowing us to air the online sessions. I love nothing more than getting out of my hour's walk, listening to a podcast or listening to an audiobook. And I just learn a lot better by listening than, than watching. And also any excuse to get away from the computer and the distractions of the world where I can get out in some fresh air and listen to an episode. I'm all over that. So I want to say a big thank you to Douglas. You can watch this session as well. Uh, if you head on over to arrival.travel, you can find that there as well. Just a heads up, I am taking next week off, so there'll be no Tourpreneur episode. I might record something for the 100th episode this weekend, uh, so keep your eyes uh, peeled for that one. But yeah, I'm taking next week off, but I have so much great content coming up for you in July. We've got several roundtables where we talk about TripAdvisor's latest research and insights. We have a live marketing, uh, local marketing session, and lots more. So uh check out that. Make sure you subscribe to the show and then you'll get that in your feed automatically on the device or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's cross over to Douglas Quinby. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Arrival Online Insights That Matter for operators of tours, activities, attractions, events, and experiences, all of the things that travelers do when they get there. 
I'm Douglas Quinby, co-founder and CEO of Arrival. And, uh, you know, I can't hide it. I've been really excited. I've been trying to get Carol Ream to speak at one of our conferences since we started back in 2017. Uh, Carol is vice president of research and analytics at Brand USA, which is so I think of it as kind of like the USA DMO, the destination marketing um, uh, uh, organization or arm of the U.S. Uh, travel industry to try to get people coming into the U.S. and spending their money here and experiencing all of the great things in the United States. Uh, and one of the things that Carol has been doing for many years when I knew her uh, at Focusrite and previously in her career in travel and tourism is understanding what consumers are thinking, how are travelers thinking about travel, how much they want to spend, where they want to go, what influences their decision making, what are the things that they want to do. Uh, so she has got so much insight and just knowledge and experience around understanding those travelers that I wanted to uh, been trying to get her at some type of arrival program. So I'm so excited that uh, that it's finally uh, happened. So welcome, Carol. Thank you. Excited to be here finally. So let's get you know right into it. So first of all, so Carol has done lots and lots of research. Uh, there's actually you did a webinar, I think, a week or two ago with some uh, research that you've compiled. And I know you've got one coming up, I think, next week or the week after. Next week. Um, but Next week. Super. So and there's a uh, I think it's a 60 or 70 slide presentation uh, that's in the handouts section of our uh, of the webinar here where you can download that and go through all of the uh, all of the data as an attendee. But what I wanted to do on this session is really just frankly, Carol, I'm just going to pick your brain about you know what you're seeing. So I so I'm just going to start, you know, with the first, you know, the first kind of big question are. We've been hearing among tour activity experience operators, local is where it's going to ha happen first. Focus on local, focus on drive, focus on kind of regional. Um, and that's, you know, that's great for for some folks where you've got meaningful local or domestic markets. But for tour operators, for experience, attraction, big attractions, uh, we all know that international is just such a big part of this industry, of their business and livelihood. So just can you first, like, what's the lowdown? International travel. When's it coming back? <laughs> How is it going to come back? <laughs> when are travelers going to come back? Uh, what, what's going on? Uh, so as much as we know that there is uh, a lot of pent up emotion, meaning people really want to vacation, they want to travel again. Um, my expectation is that it will happen incrementally. So it's not going to be a big wave. It's not going to be a nice V-shape um, kind of recovery. It's, it's going to take more time. And with COVID, there's just so much additional complexity um, because uh, you have to you have to incorporate different facets of, of life, right? So you have the disease itself and kind of the health ramifications. You have policy and government involved, and that always adds time and a lot more additional complexity to things. Um, and so there's just so much involved um, between those two things. And then you have the economic issues, um, which are, you know, so it's like a trifecta of challenges. Um, and so I, I think the mentality of focusing on local first um, and, and sort of 
sort of nearby uh, source markets just makes a lot of practical sense. Um, when we think about the United States, um, there is kind of a silver lining in that, in that the U.S. is such a large outbound source market. And because Americans are not traveling internationally, they're going to replace those with domestic trips. So while there is a lot of, you know, sort of a big dip in inbound, um, there will be some relief coming in the form of domestic travel. So you talked about like an incremental return. So uh, can you parse that out, you know, a, a little bit? What are those those increments, I guess? And so from um, it's local, domestic, but then as international does return. So I guess I might think, well, OK, there's there's Canada, there's Mexico. Is it nearby international? And then and then so long haul is, you know, is longer term. Can you walk us through that? Absolutely. I mean, and I, and I think it's pretty um, intuitive, right? So uh, first, the expectation is Canada for, for lots of reasons, um, but proximity is a big one. Um, and also, uh, there's a lot of freedom of movement. And um, because people live so close to the border, so so much of the population lives so close to the border in Canada, um, they can hop in their car and drive. And one of the things that people really are thinking about as they're planning their first vacations, as they're sort of emerging from their cocoons, um, is that they want flexibility and control and drive trips just lend themselves to that. Um, and so if the situation changes, if something happens, they can just hop in their car and adjust um, accordingly. So that is the first type of international travel we're expecting to see and certainly the first type of trip that we're targeting to, to try to promote. Um, and then kind of I think of it as radiating circles, right? Because the farther you go, the more expensive and the more risky it is. And generally the, the farther in advance um, you have to plan. So when we talk to consumers about their timeframes, um, you know, we're already seeing uh, really far away markets being pushed out all the way to spring of, of 2021 as mm. kind of the earliest time we can expect to see them come back. Mm. Um, so, how do consumers feel like, like, because we've been hearing about this pent up demand, right? And that's, and I've just wondered, you know, is it pent up demand or is it wishful, you know, <laughs> wishful thinking? I mean, how do you equate, you know, taking a trip with like a risk of dying, right? Like, I mean, really, that's what you're in a way kind of, that's what people are you know, addressing, right? Or getting seriously ill or how, how are consumers thinking about this? Uh, so I think of the COVID challenge in three buckets. One is the disease itself and concern about getting sick. Two, um, as far as international is concerned, getting stuck with changing restrictions. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, you could easily be stuck in an airport or you're misinformation and things are constantly changing. And so that adds a lot of complex complexity and confusion. Um, and then the other piece is um, just will things be open? Will I get the experience that I came for? If I'm going to fly halfway across the world and I come to New York City and I can't go to Broadway and I can't eat in nice restaurants and I can't have that experience, what's the point of me doing that? Um, so those are the three things that we measure when we think about the impact of COVID. And then, of course, there's all the economic stuff, right? And the uncertainty about people's economic futures. And so these impact different age groups differently. They impact um, people with families differently. Um, and so it's really interesting to see those differences. So all of the above is true. So 
um, you know, what we're focused on is people still really want to travel. And I think the, the term pent up demand can be a little bit misleading because we think of demand as in, in supply and demand, right? People are ready to buy. They want to buy. And it is wishful thinking. They wish they could travel. Most of them cannot for any one of those reasons. Most of them will not, especially for international, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we think about as marketers is that that pent up desire I'll call it that, um, which is different from that kind of business sense of demand where they're ready to buy. So uh, uh, so let me break the, uh, those three components that you talked about. Let me ask first about kind of the just that safety uh, and, and health health issues. So uh, let's say a traveler does want to go. And uh, how are they thinking about that safety issue and so on and where i'm <clears throat> i'm thinking about this is okay if i run an attraction or if i run a tour how do i what do i have to know and think about to make sure that you know i'm conveying that sense of a sense of security and safety to that traveler yeah i think um there is the the factors of hygiene obviously um and while it's not exciting stuff finding ways to be um really transparent and communicative about those hygiene practices and heightened level of cleaning um and then kind of the the space um and barrier things about social distancing um and and those aspects of things so when we when we think about what people are trying to avoid um are just kind of crowded situations um uh, environments where there's not, you know, a lot of ventilation. So, you know, certain kind of activities that are outdoors kind of benefit from not having to, to deal with that. I think it's, that's more of an indoor challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think it, it follows the guidelines of, you know, the issues around how the disease actually gets communicated across people. Um, and I think anything anyone can do to, to reassure customers um, that you're doing everything you can to, to prevent that um, goes a long way in this environment. Now, you would also talked about kind of different segments of travelers have are, are thinking about these things differently. And so, you know, and depending upon the type of tour experience that I might offer, I might tend to have older, you know, older travelers. It could be more of a cultural experience or um, it could be um, an adventure experience, which tends to attract kind of younger uh, travelers. Or I'm, maybe I'm doing tours which are, or an attraction which, which has a big exposure to the family market. So help me kind of break those. Uh, you know, I, I know that, you know, in terms of demographics and segments, you, could, you, know, you can go really deep, but maybe can you talk through some of the big buckets and what we need to know about those big buckets of travelers? Sure. So I think the biggest challenge is with older travelers. Obviously, they have the most health risk when we think about mm-hmm. COVID itself, but also from a financial standpoint. Um, if you're close to retirement, if you're worried about your nest egg, now is not the time to be spending freely, right? So yeah. um, it's kind of a, a really conservative group when it comes to spending, um, especially now as it relates to travel and specifically in, in light of COVID. So when we look at the responses for different age groups, we typically see the oldest age group being the least likely or, or the biggest drop in intent to travel from that group. Um, so if I'm, if I'm as an operator, if I tend to be a bit more exposed, say to the boomer and the, kind of the senior market, I need to I, I need to be looking to other segments. <laughs> 
It'd be it'd probably be a good idea. It's, uh, it's, okay. uh, it'd be a tough. It's it's a tough proposition for that yeah. group, um, yeah. especially right now. Uh, younger travelers are definitely more resilient, and they're less concerned about the sort of health uh, risks. Um, and you know, I think the what's super interesting looking at the data is uh, those with children in the household, you could think on, on one hand, your instinct might be to say they're probably less likely to travel because they're super concerned about their children, even though the disease doesn't seem to be impacting them um, particularly strongly. You know, as parents, you're, you're really cautious about your children. On the other hand, you've been stuck in the house with them, <laughs> homeschooling, um, trying to work. And, and it's been a really, you know, that's you. Um, and so what we're finding is that that latter instinct to escape that desperate need for a change of scenery is what wins out. So people with children in the household are more likely to say that they're going to travel in the next 12 months compared to those who don't have kids. Hmm. Hmm. And does an operator, do we have to make certain accommodations for, for adults that are fa- traveling with kids? Uh, I mean, I would, I would think that there would be more, um, we're just more concerned about kind of safety and, and say sanitation as opposed to, uh, you know, younger, you know, younger travelers, singles or, or, you know, married couples without kids. Um, you know, I don't know that, I mean, beyond the typical provisions for, for families, um, I don't, you know, I think when you layer the two things that you might ordinarily do, like having hand sanitizer all mm-hmm. over the place and, and having access to, um, like not only systematically clean, but give, you know, parents and, and um, your guests the option to, to you know, kind of participate in that, um, I think is is helpful. I don't know that there needs to be something totally specialized in terms of hygiene just for children. So um, <clears throat> I'd like to also uh, kind of talk a bit about different markets. I know in the research that you've done, you've surveyed, uh, you survey, uh, so outbound markets, for the U.S., uh, you look at Asia, you know, across across Europe. What are you seeing uh, in terms of differences from, say, uh, say U.K. versus you know German travelers versus French travelers? We have a lot of attendees on the event today, say who are you know who are in Europe. Uh, let's say they're, I'm an operator in France or Italy, but I'm, I run English speaking experiences typically for the U.K., Australia, uh, and you know, in U.S. market. So. Now, if I'm not going to be getting that U.S. traveler that much this year, maybe not until next year. So, like, I'm, I'm is the, the the U.K. traveler? Are they now looking to to Europe? Can you give us a sense of how this is playing out across across different markets? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the general statement is everyone is narrowing kind of their radius of where they're traveling, right? So, um, you know, the same in a similar lens of us kind of losing the inbound, but um, getting a little bit of a booster from domestic will happen kind of alternatively around the world. Um, When we think about intra-European travel um, and how easy it is um, to get across um, those borders in kind of the, the continent, um, you know, we expect to see a lot of activity, the cross-border activity across that continental European area. For the UK, obviously, it's a little bit different. Um, and so it, it might be a bit more of a challenge because so many, so much of that volume typically happens over air. 
um, and air just have different challenges. Uh, so um, it, it, there are definitely big differences as we look market to market. And again, the disease is one factor and policy is another. Um, and so because it's so dynamic, it's hard to make kind of broader generalizations. Mm-hmm. But that's what I can say is happening pretty consistently around the world. Well, where do um, where do experiences, tours, attractions, the things that travelers do, where do that, that fit into the overall um, hierarchy in this new world of the traveler's consideration sex. I know you're looking at, you're looking at this at a macro level, right? So you're looking at, you know, air travel, accommodation, you know, dining and shopping as well as experiences. How is, how are, how is our industry doing in this environment, you know, in terms of the priority relative, uh, relative to other segments, how are travelers thinking about, about us? I think it definitely depends on the type Right. So you have such broad categories of in destination activities. Um, a great outdoors centric activities are um, going to do better than, you know, kind of crowded urban experiences. Um, mm-hmm. You could predict that. Right. Um, what's interesting is that we see when we when we ask people if you're going to spend more on your next trip, what are you going to spend more on? And if you're going to spend less on your trip, what are you going to spend less on? And a lot of them on both sides will say destination activities. And it's about the type of traveler and the type of trip. But I can say that people are placing a lesser priority on things like sightseeing and cultural experiences and more of a priority on kind of rest and relaxation and um, staying within their comfort zone. So they want to do things that are familiar to them. They trust the experience. They know what's going to happen. They don't want a lot of surprises and they're not necessarily looking for big adventure. They're looking to decompress and kind of relax and chill out. So it's a different mindset. Um, And it's not extreme. These are kind of like slight shifts in priorities. Um, You know, adventure travelers are still going to want to do that. But um, we're seeing where things are kind of over indexing and under indexing. And again, like any big, uh, you know, any big differences from a market to market uh, standpoint. So German travelers versus UK travelers there or Asian travelers, for example. Um, it is pretty remarkable how consistently, um, you know, staying within my comfort zone over indexes. I mean, that's pretty universal. Um, and then in certain markets, um, and it's, it's not a major difference. We see luxury kind of stepping back. So they're not necessarily looking to spend a lot of money and have, um, you know, that really indulgent kind of experience. Um, and I think I'm trying to remember, there's so much data (laughs) market to market. I don't remember a ton being unusual. We generally saw similar things, um, across all the markets because it's, it's pretty intuitive. I think these are really kind of human reactions that people are having. So there's a question here from, uh, Lisa Menard, who, if I recall, Lisa, your, uh, luxury, um, uh, yacht kind of a charter operator in the Caribbean. So I hope I've got that. <laughs> hope I've got that right, Lise. But um, so I she had an interesting question about kind of the boomer demographic, but also with families, like if they can travel solo or experience something solo, um, is that uh, like if I can take a private tour with my family or have an experience that doesn't involve interacting with other travelers, am I 
um, is that kind of a better, am I, am I in a better position uh, versus uh, other types of experiences? Uh, yes, for sure. <laughs> the, those who have the means will pay for private everything, private homes, private tours, you know, anything private experience wise. Um, it is the sort of wealthy demographic that doesn't need to be so concerned about near-term financial concerns. They will spend more on the vacation. It's that much more important to them. And so those kind of high-end products, I think, will do quite well. You know, so, uh, you know, related to that, and this, this is similar to the question that's also here from, uh, from Dean Michaels, and uh, but I've we've had this quite a bit. With all of the increased attention on, you know, local, right? It's local, domestic, regional. That's what we have to focus on. So um, if I'm an operator in the Caribbean, if I'm, you know, an, or if I'm an operator, uh, which you say in Hawaii, which, you know, there, there just simply isn't a, a big local or domestic, you know, market, uh, or there's not one at all, right? If I'm in the Canary Islands, I mean, like, <laughs> so... Is there any, <clears throat> how long is my tunnel? And is there, is there any light? <laughs> like, when am I going to, when am I going to see it? Um, again, this is where I think policy uh, kind of impacts things, right? So Hawaii's uh, challenge is not even necessarily people are unwilling to get on a plane and go to Hawaii. The two week quarantine is a really tough, thing for a traveler to swallow. Um, and so this is where policy really makes an impact. And there's a lot of reasons why that makes sense for Hawaii. And there are a lot of reasons um, that they they did that and, and created that policy because um, they have to think about, you know, the health considerations and Hawaii being so isolated. Um, so that, you know, I think everyone is in a slightly different scenario. I'd say in general, um, the Caribbean islands that cater to wealthy American clientele uh, will probably be pretty okay because, again, there's a lot of demand and desire, and those who have the means to do it will do it, private everything. Um, so, I, you know, the product that are individual villas and casitas and um, that kind of higher-end stuff, I think, um, in the Caribbean would do well. I think it's the kind of mid-tier, lower-tier kind of product that will struggle the most um, because, you know, when you think about the the buffet lines and in some all-inclusives and things like that, it's it's those types of experiences that I think will be the most challenged. And then what about on the accommodation side, you know, hotels versus rentals, you know, Airbnb and so forth? Where are you kind of seeing the interest? What do travelers – I know hotels say – Travelers like them better. I know Airbnb says everyone wants to stay in an Airbnb. So what's what's the actual truth? Um, I do think the pendulum swings a bit more towards the private rental. Mm-hmm. Um, not dramatically so, but that, that definitely is there. There is um, a not insignificant group of people that are choosing to stay in home rentals rather than hotels because mm-hmm. of this America. So a great question here from uh, Craig Zapotka, Craig Zapotka, asking about small group tours and uh, some of the changes there. Uh, and I think here, you know, Craig is also he's asking about kind of the multi-day kind of tour experience. So an Intrepid or G Adventures or you know, Trafalgar. Uh, so joining a tour um, with a group, uh, going 
uh, going places. What's what's the state of so this is not the day tour operator, but the multi-day. So it includes accommodation. You're traveling with a group through a destination over seven to 14 days. What's the outlook for that segment? Uh, um, you know, I, I, my initial reaction would be that that is a tough sell, um, partly because of the control factor um, and that you're going to be forced into situations where you have close contact with strangers. And, um, you know, those two things are things that most people are trying to avoid. Uh, so to the extent that that operator could address those issues, try to build in some flexibility, try to make sure they're communicating how they're creating private spaces throughout, you know, the experiences, um, I think could potentially help. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, on the flip side, you know, just related to that, you know, there's no place where we are in closer quarters with other travelers than on an airplane. How are travelers thinking about flying? And there's been, I mean, uh, speculation about removing the middle seat, you know, and everyone has to wear face masks and all of that. But, you know, to me, it seems like if people are willing to get on the plane, they'd probably be willing to do a tour. But I mean, what's your, um, what are travelers saying about getting on a crowded plane? Um, well, the difference is, I think, between the tour and the plane is you don't really have an alternative to flying when for a lot of destinations. You kind of have to. Um, whereas with a tour, you have other options. Um, and I, I think that's the big challenge there. Um, I don't think anyone's flying right now because they want to sit really close to strangers in a giant flying metal box, right? We're doing we have to because we want to go on vacation so badly. Um, and for a lot of people, I mean, we can see this, the demand is nowhere near normal levels. So most people are saying that's just not a risk I'm willing to take right now. Yeah. Oh, so, so Craig, probably not the answer you really wanted to, to hear, but yeah, <laughs> but that's, that's the challenge we're facing. So there's a, so there's an interesting observation from Norbert Simon. Uh, uh, so he's, you know, he disagrees with you about your perspective on the international boomer segment. Uh, and from a financial perspective, uh, I think his point of view is that you know boomers and olders, uh, older uh, travelers uh, in certain European markets are maybe a bit more fan- financially secure um, and may not be as concerned. Um, you know, so I think he's just more of expressing a point of view. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts? Well, this is, uh, I'm not guessing, I'm measuring. (laughs) So this is, you know, certainly not everyone. There's going to be pockets of people who feel financially secure. So what I'm talking about is the trend, right? So what are we, where are the majority doing? Where are the trends that we're seeing? Um, And again, it's also relative. So um, when we compare boomers to other segments, what does that look like? So yeah. there's, they're less likely to travel. That's not that they're not going to travel, um, but this is measurement of a broad swath of people. So there'll always be exceptions to that. Got it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so there's a great question from uh, Sebastian around, you know, so the possibility of a, of a second wave and we're in some respects, we're kind of, I don't know, are we already in a little bit of a second wave in, in certain states here in the U.S.? If you pick up the news 
uh, today. But I that, know we're past the first wave, honestly. Yeah. I don't know that we can even call it a second wave in some of these places. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's like a cloud that's been hanging over, you know, uh, um, well, a, a cloud that's been hanging over forecasting, let me put it that way, around how we plan for the future. How do you plan for a future when there's this this extraordinary uncertainty of a resurgence? Um, are you, so are you are you surveying? Do you ask? Have you asked consumers? Like, are they? Is that a concern they have? Like, if I'm especially if I'm planning a trip, say for the fall, everyone's talking about a resurgence in the fall when the flu season kind of picks up with this colder weather, or do I? How am I planning a trip for then? Is that is that impacting consumer sentiment? Uh, definitely. Mm. Um, so I think the the I, and I appreciate you doing everything you can to avoid the word unprecedented. <laughs> You're the first person to say it. <laughs> um, but that's that's why it's so gosh darn hard to predict what's going to happen. There's nothing to base models from. Um, so, you know, ultimately what we're seeing right now and where people are. So in the past few months, people were just saying, I don't know what I'm going to do with my travel plans. I'm just going to try to absorb what's happening. Um, and last month we started to see people get off the fence to say, I'm either postponing my trip. I'm taking my trip as I'm, I was going to, but I'm going to take precautions. Um, and so people are starting to feel like they have enough information to make those decisions. And that is a very big step towards recovery. But they're obviously watching the situation. And so if we get to a place where we're starting to see more cases bubble up in different places, they're going to be quick to react to that. Um, so when we look at the time frame for a lot of people, they've already pushed it out to, to 2021. Um, and it was just, for example, uh, UK, when we, when we look at, we measure the months that people say they're going to travel in the next 12 months, we see a, a peak, like all the way pushed out to, you know, April of, of 2021, people are pushing it out as far as they can. And they're thinking about next spring, just because there's so much uncertainty, not only is there the the risk of, you know, just um, the concern with actually traveling, the concern is also like, well, what if I book it and something happens and I'm stuck with it and a lot of insurance products don't cover the situation. And so there is, again, that financial risk involved as well. So there's a, uh, there's a great question here from Larry Raubach, and it's also related to Lisa's follow up about um, getting families on a plane. Uh, so. I mean, I, I think, you know, Larry's question, it fundamentally just gets to I, I, the bigger question of the impact of the 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 economic scarring that has is happening as a result of the uh, of the, the lockdown. So, you know, we've heard in several of our online events and from experts, uh, you know, if you can, you know, hold pricing steady like you don't want to start going down the, the, the path of discounting. Mm -hmm. um, but how can you add value? Like, so in other words, what do you, so what do we have to do as an industry to get people, you know, on planes and in tours and, and on buses and, but also, so I'd like to, but just, I'd also just like your, you know, you, we've talked a lot about the kind of that first, um, 
that first um, kind of sphere that you talked about, one is kind of health and safety, but the other, the third sphere you talked about was the economic impact. So can you just give us an overview first, like just what's, you know, we've got now, was it 40 million unemployed people in the United States, we're at 16 or 17% unemployment or, or higher, like, and it's also, you know, in Europe is also uh, deep in recession, like what's, What's just the economic impact of this on on consumer confidence around traveling and their willingness to spend? If they're and if they are traveling, are they spending a lot less? Like, are they going from four star hotels to three star hotels? There is definitely a, a big impact, and in the sort of more mature traveling markets, you can see very clearly that those who are planning to travel are pulling back a bit. They're, they're more likely to spend less than more or the same. In emerging markets, that's not necessarily the case. Um, and I, I think uh, it's, so it, a lot has to do with, you know, the just the financial security, right? There are certain professions and sectors that are much more at risk than others. Um, and certain ones that are even, you know, a small minority that are even booming. Um, and so, so much of that personal perspective just depends on where you sit in, in that spectrum. Um, but overall, you know, the economic situation is a huge um, challenge, you know, just on its own. Um, and the ripple effects takes time. Um, so, you know, restaurants and travel are obvious and hit first, but then, you know, the supply chains for that, right? You know, hotels use a lot of products and it just goes backwards from there. And now it goes to the farmers and um, it just, it just keeps kind of spreading outward and outward. So um, there are still industries that will be impacted that haven't even felt the full brunt of it yet. Mm. So what, what do we as operators have to do? So getting to, you know, Larry's question about, you know, about value. Um, I, I personally, I'm, you know, I love the idea of value, but, you know, we all know that <laughs> there's going to be a lot of pressure on pricing. Like what, what do we have to do, you know, in terms of pricing, in terms of value, like how do we think about um, stimulating that, you know, that behavior? I think the instinct to avoid discounting is a good one. Um, and if you look at uh, the scenario on, on a pricing decision, you could try to discount it, but is the, is the, is that what's stopping the person? Is it really the price that's stopping the person or the fear of traveling? Mm. In most cases, if they're going to travel, they're going to travel. If they're not going to travel, they're not going to travel. And the price is not going to sway that that much. Obviously, economics are a concern um, and, you know, barring, you know, huge differentials. And it's also interesting to see the cues from, you know, other parts of the industry. Airline tickets are not rock bottom cheap right now um, because it's just doesn't make economic sense for them to do that. They'd rather just not fly the plane. And they're constricting the supply to make that work for them. So uh, the hotel way, side, though, if I, it, it will, I mean, I might still decide, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Florida. I'm going to go to uh, Europe, but maybe I'm going to stay in this hotel versus that hotel, or maybe I'm going to take this tour versus, you know, versus that tour because of a, because of the price difference. 
in this environment, no? Um, yeah, that, that could happen. But I think also um, going back to how much these vacations mean to people, and especially when it comes to international travel, you don't do that very often. Most people are not really that willing to make, you know, huge trade-offs that way is it's just not worth going then if that's what you're going to do. Um, so, you know, there are always going to be differences and pockets and it depends again, very much on the individual attraction and activity and who the target segment is. But I'd say on the whole, again, my lens is typically international. Um, it's just, it's such an important part of the experience um, that, that a lot of people are just not, going to be that concerned about it mm. and and i think when you think about the motivation of lowering price it is to spur demand it isn't necessarily going to do that you can't because it, it just doesn't it's such a different environment right now there's a, there's a few questions here which relate to uh which uh relate really to policy so uh you Wait, know, actually, my thought. I just wanted to, I just thought of something. The other thing too is if you are as an operator changing your experience, changing your configurations, doing things to give people more space, more privacy, people might even be willing to pay a premium for that um, because that's such a huge priority for them. So I just wanted to say that. (laughs) Premiums are definitely good. so, you know, there's a few questions here related to, to policy. Um, and I know, you know, so Brand USA, you don't uh, implement policy, although, although you certainly influence, uh, you know, policy for sure. Um, Other but, way around. We do not influence policy, but we do have to enforce it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the... So, I mean, here's the the question, and this is from uh, Voladia Sul. I apologize, Voladia Sulam Sulemanov. I'm sure I've mispronounced that. Uh, so, I mean, this is it. You know, when are travelers from the USA gonna go to Europe? So, when's it gonna happen? And for that matter, if you're an operator here in the U.S., you know, when can Europeans? You know, when can international travelers come back? I mean, so I guess this is, I mean, I, you know, and I mean, obviously you don't, so you don't, uh, you don't decide policy. So you're not going to say when, but um, we're not expecting that, but um, you're plugged in a bit. Are, are, are you from a, both a policy perspective, but also from a traveler, you know, sentiment demand perspective, you know, if you had to, if you had to put a, you know, put a dart in a map somewhere on a calendar, you know, where would you put it? Uh, I'd say that, um, the big question is going to be, uh, related to the pace of the disease. And if there is another winter, you know, wave and, Mm. and that dictates everything policy, everything will go from there. Um, and I am not an epidemiologist. I have no idea what's going to happen with that. Um, and that again is, is a challenge, right? This isn't about business. This isn't about consumer sentiment. This is about the disease and what's going to happen with that. Um, And so that is why it's so difficult to 
plan um, and to do things uh, so far out when we know there is a real risk of it bubbling back up in, in the winter. That said, um, you know, from a marketing perspective, from, from a brand USA perspective, we are orienting ourselves um, for uh, really targeting the 2021 travel planning season. We're already pushing it out that far. And again, that's because we're talking about international marketing for inbound into the United States. Canada is on a different time frame. Um, but for the rest of the world, we just have to think like that because um, for, for us as marketers, we want to make sure that when we're spending those media dollars, that we're having the best impact that we can have to push people to book when they're ready to book. And until they're ready to do that in and, and, and significant amounts, um, we just don't think it's a wise use of our funds. Um, and so we've already started pushing that time frame out that far. So we just got a couple of minutes uh, left. So I have a few questions here. And this other one uh, from Janina, Geneva Ellen, also related to policy. So she's referring to a few destinations. I know Greece is another one, which is imp- which is opening up, but is opening up on a limited basis only to those countries where uh, you know they they believe that there is a, there's been effective kind of handling of the um, of the of the disease. You know, likewise, you know, we even ourselves as a family have been looking at trying to do some type of travel over the summer, um, but we're also seeing in certain destinations if we want to go somewhere, we have to all get tests within three days, and then we have to show proof that we test negative when we land. Otherwise, we, like you said, have to go and we have to get tested there and we have to be in quarantine for up to 14, uh, 14 days. So is that, um, how do you see that playing out from a, is that gonna be a kind of a widely adopted approach to, uh, to policy of reopening at a kind of, at a, at a national uh, level and are we all going to have to walk around with, you know, COVID-free, COVID-free cards um, or or stamps in our passports? Yeah, I I think the hardest part of that right is just the the timeliness of that testing mm-hmm. uh, and the technology. Um, you know, I I think the hope, I mean, at least my hope is um, that technology tries to to help that solution. So better, cheaper, faster testing. Um, and, and how that can solve such a myriad of, of issues. Um, and, you know, we've seen some airlines actually try to test everyone before they get on a plane, um, which is kind of one extreme of things that I don't think could be implemented, you know, on any massive scale. Um, but there, there is that trade-off between effectiveness at testing and, and how invasive and difficult and, and challenging that is. There's also the tracking apps and issues of privacy. Um, there are so many questions that, that have to get answered. Um, but I do think that testing can play a role. I think the challenges with the United States, it still takes a long time to get test results back. Um, and so we've got to see these windows tighten um, before we can really lean on testing to support um, the, the free movement of people around the world. So uh, I've got time for one more question. Uh, there's a few questions here that related to research. I wanted to emphasize again, do please download the slides that are in the handout section here. It's right to the right of Q&A. Uh, I think some of those questions will actually be answered, such as like some of the top destinations. So do please have a look. 
um, at that and take a few moments to download. It's it's a large file. <laughs> I know because I uploaded it. There's a lot of stuff in there, but it's uh, but it's certainly worth it. Uh, so just you know, I'll, one last question, uh, and this is, uh, again, from uh, Craig Zapatka. Uh, so uh, on the impact of sustainability, uh, this is something that has it seemed like up until last year or up until the pandemic was one of the um, uh, the top global, I think, issues that was really coming to the fore uh, around the impact of travel and tourism on uh, on uh, on the environment, on local cultures, uh, growing uh, concern among travelers. From our research, we've seen from especially from younger travelers, um, is that you know in, in times like this, you know when you've got a you know a, <laughs> a pandemic you know unleashed on the world, and when uh, you know our pocketbooks have all become you know a lot lighter. Do those types of priorities, do they really fall to the wayside or is that still important uh, for travelers today? If there is a silver lining to the pandemic, um, it is uh, forcing us to think about right-sizing capacity. Um, And I think ultimately, though it's not necessarily top of mind as people are going through this, but... Um, there will be positive impact from a sustainability standpoint just because of those changes to capacity um, and rejiggering of economics, right? So business has to be able to run and be profitable and process fewer people in this environment. And so it's kind of an interesting shock to the system um, that could have beneficial impact from a sustainability point of view. Um, You know, what happens when, there is a vaccine and things can be quote normal again. Um, I think that's when, you know, there is the opportunity to, to, to try to sustain those things. But we've, we've seen in so many instances, the earth starting to heal itself and that's such a hopeful thing. Um, So hopefully this opens eyes um, and, and um, creates solutions for people to think about how they can still have business, um, but do it in a more sustainable way. Well, that's great. Well, we have a number of, of additional questions. Unfortunately, we're you know, we are out of time. Uh, so, but Carol, thank you so much for joining us today, and for sharing your insights. And uh, it's just great to have this conversation and just get to pick your brain really on all of the things that uh, you are seeing. So, uh, yeah. So, thank you uh, very much. And um, we're going to have to get you back at one of our in-person uh, events. We'll corner you on stage. Uh, so maybe we can <laughs> add that to your, to your 2021 marketing plans as well. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.